Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and we have been focused on the Pennsylvania Innocence Project for the last several podcasts. And I hope people have been listening. We did have um, Clay Waterman with us, who was the intake attorney. Uh, he talked about his aspect of going through um, the difficult decisions of accepting a case or or not. Um, the project gets about 600 letters. They, they answer them all, but obviously they cannot take all the cases uh, just beyond uh, just beyond their ability to do that. Maybe if they had you know 100 lawyers, they could do that. So uh, the project has been around since 2009 and uh, they have exonerated uh, 20 men and women. Um, we have today with us um, a guest from the last time. Her name is Mal Raghunathan, and she is the um, reentry specialist, a social worker working with people to help them over the very difficult um, fence of leaving prison and coming out into society. And I think, um, Molly, I welcome you back. Thank you for joining us again. It's of course, thank delightful. you. Um, I think that um, when you, last time you referred to people being in prison for decades with mm -hmm. the S on the end, um, what, what do you, um, know about people who have been there that long. How is that a much greater uh, adjustment coming back into society than maybe someone who spent under 10 years? Mm. What would you say? I'm, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's often not talked about as much as I think we should. Um, I think regardless of time spent in prison, um, the prevalence of mental illness in prisons is higher than the general population um, because it's prison, right? And there is a much higher prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder in mm. incarcerated populations, regardless of the amount of time that they may have spent there. Um, which, you know, I'm sure is not surprising to people who know how the prison system works. Uh, but with our clients who are exonerated, not only are they justice involved, they're also, you know, they were wrongfully convicted of something they did not do. So just because now they're released from prison after all these years, um, just because they receive compensation, just because they receive assistance in some form, the feelings of anger and betrayal, frustration, trauma, it, it, it doesn't disappear, right? Um, People often, you know, talk about experiencing trauma symptoms on a daily basis as a huge challenge to acclimating back to society. Um, panic, nightmares, flashbacks, a kind of pervasive sense of emptiness. I mean, how do you reckon with the fact that your life was stolen from you, right? Um, and again, we, we can't address their mental health unless their general reentry needs are taken care of, right? Because we know that that is not a given. Um, basic needs, housing, food, transportation, we know that that's not 
magically provided to them by the state, right? So everything becomes um, a challenge to some extent. Do, do you think we talked about compensation last time? Do you think that if the state of Pennsylvania did give uh, a similar amount to, say, Florida, which gives $50,000 for each year you were locked up, Mm-hmm. So if you if someone was locked up for 20 years, that's a great deal of money. Does that make it easier? It can help, but I don't think it makes it easier. Um, you know, we've seen clients who have come into a lot of money, a significant amount of money via settlements, right? And it helps tremendously, um, but it doesn't take away from what they're dealing with um, emotionally, mentally, physically, their family has been through for decades. Yeah, I, I often say that um, when um, someone is wrongly sentenced, the family is sentenced to. Oh, absolutely. And they certainly yeah. are, especially if it's, as you say, decades of visits. Um, often people in prison, regardless of whether they're guilty or not, are moved from place prison to prison. And sometimes those prisons are very far away. So, you know, there's such a strain on the family to keep that connection going. And and then you have COVID where most, I would say, all of the prisons in the country were shut down in terms of visiting. So uh, you couldn't even do that. So it's just, there are so many layers to re-entry. just the the loss of people in the family that died. And usually you're not allowed to go to the funeral. I, I don't know of anyone who gets out and goes to a family member's funeral. So it, it's, uh, when you talk about post-traumatic stress, uh, it, it's, it's just um, made up of so many aspects that maybe none of us even think about, right? That's right, that's right. Is, is counseling, do you know if counseling um, has helped some of the people that you have dealt with? Yes, um, many of our clients actually um, have at least tried counseling to see if it would help them. And a lot of them do report that it has in some way aided their um, adjustment, right? Especially because, so we partner with Drexel University and they provide... um, psychological counseling services for our clients at a subsidized rate. And they, what they do is, is a very specific technique called prolonged exposure, which is an evidence-based treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so oftentimes when our clients come home and we connect them with Drexel, that is the kind of treatment that they're exposed to. Um, and this clinic specializes in working with exonerated clients, which, you know, it, it, it makes us feel like we can support them on that front to some extent. What can you explain what that is, that prolonged exposure? Yes. Um, so essentially, trauma um, breeds avoidance, right? So the more we avoid the stimuli that is overwhelming to us, the more we kind of maintain the symptoms of trauma. So in prolonged exposure, they serve to do the opposite of that. Can we gradually expose you to all of the injustices and all of the trauma that you have experienced and witnessed 
until it stops provoking a visceral reaction in you. So can we keep kind of talking about and thinking about and bringing those experiences to light, um, you know, experiences from three, four decades um, of witnessing and experiencing really horrific things um, so you can heal, essentially. It's, uh, I, I, I so often, I do a lot of speaking because I have been very active with the Innocence Project in Florida. And um, it's so hard for me and for others to wrap our heads around what it's like to have your basic freedom taken away and be locked up for, as you say, decades. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is remarkable to me is the lack of bitterness do you come across that? You, you would think people would be so angry because of what has happened to them. Right. What, what do you see? Um, definitely a mix. I think the anger, if it's there, um, it, it cannot be expressed in the intensity that it exists in is what I imagine, right? Like if I would imagine that I would be very angry and bitter for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, Many of our clients, however, you know, what they tell me is that they cannot afford to be that way. Um, they have finally come home. They finally have the chance to live the life that they want and they can't, they don't feel like they can afford to spend it being angry or bitter at the system, right? Um, and I think part of it is also that there is no one person to be angry at. There, mm. it, it's it's so many people, it is the system as a whole. Um, and I, I think oftentimes I wonder if it feels too overwhelming to sit in that. Um, it's also grief and loss, right? Of having lost these years of your life in many ways. Um, but I will say that, you know, despite all the challenges that we have talked about, um, our clients manage these unbearable hardships with so much grace and strength and perspective. Um, you know, many of them take those feelings and they give back to their communities in ways they can, right? Like they try to, I think they really try to use what has happened to them to educate and raise awareness. And, um, you know, one of our clients actually who spent about 42 years in prison and he was wrongfully convicted. Um, he is now hoping to provide reentry support to returning citizens, innocent or not. Um, and he currently provides temporary housing for all the people in his network who were in oh, prison and who are coming home. That's incredible. That is and, really amazing. Absolutely. And he, you know, when he first came home, he was reliant on finding enough support within his community and through nonprofits because it had been so long that he had no family or friends that would be able to support him. Um, so I think, you know, our clients work with what has happened to them in many different ways. And some of them, you know, they draw strength from the fact that they did not admit guilt despite the circumstances they dealt with. Um, you know, they had to, they stuck through with, their innocence until the end. Um, and some of them, you know, they're legal experts, like they've had to learn and understand the system and advocate for themselves in ways that we can't possibly imagine. Yeah, yeah I, I've met a number of people that 
became very um, fine students of the law, right. uh, lived in the law library, and that was to their advantage. Um, are some of the clients that you deal with, have they been able to do anything with higher education while they're while they were locked up? Getting um, a, a degree or I don't know what Pennsylvania prisons offer in terms of uh, higher education. Yeah, I think definitely many of our clients tried to use their time in prison to, you know, um, advance their education in some capacity. Um, I'm not sure about higher ed, but um, I definitely know that they've taken courses at the very least. Yeah. yeah. Do, does, do you know if uh, Pennsylvania requires them to at least get a high school diploma? I don't think it's required. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. New York it is, yeah, which oh, I think okay. is, is great. Uh, right. At least you come out with a high school diploma, if nothing more. Right. But, uh, Various states do college programs, which is really wonderful. Uh, so mm. that they at least have a leg up when they Absolutely. when they do come out. Um, are there specific success stories that you could tell us about in more of a general way? I, I like the story you just told us about um, this man who spent so much time wrongfully incarcerated and came out and is now helping others. That's wonderful. Do you? Yes. Um, so many. <laughs> I oh, can really? think of one for every kind. Definitely. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, tell us uh, some of the, the success stories. Um, the, I guess the ones that come to mind are people who have come home and built the life that they wanted to lead, right? So whether that looks like um, working in the field of their choice or you know, some of them um, are because they were legal experts in prison and had to be, now they want to work within that system as well. And they've been able to. Um, another client, he's not, uh, he works with us, but he was um, exonerated by the New York Innocence Project. All right. Mm -hmm. um, he is a playwright and a filmmaker. So mm -hmm. he, you know, has written plays in, in prison. And now that he's home, um, he's communicating with different filmmakers and producers to see how he can, you know, let us all kind of bask in the gifts that he has to share. Um, many other clients who have, a lot of our clients actually are very interested in education and awareness. So traveling to universities, talking to college students about, you know, wrongful conviction, um, engaging in advocacy efforts, um, having healthy relationships, getting married, having children, um, things that, you know, their peers did in their 30s and 40s, right, that right. you kind of take for granted in a sense. Right. Yeah. The reason I became involved in the first place with the Florida Innocence Project was having seen a picture on the front page of the Sarasota Herald Tribune of a man who spent 35 years in prison, I thought then that was, I, at that time, I don't think anyone had spent more time than he had. He, this was mm -hmm. 2009. And that's what prompted me to call them and say, what can I do? I don't yeah. have a law background, but I can help in some way. And, and mm -hmm. I have. So that he, he uh, was 19 uh, when he went in and 
you know, do the math. He was he was all the way up there. But he too uh, um, married and had a, a little boy. So he oh, started cool. over late, but he's but at least he started over. So right. there are there are those wonderful success stories. Do do, um, do you follow uh, after maybe you've helped um, to with the transition? Do you keep in touch with clients uh, maybe once they're kind of on their, their way or do they keep in touch with you and let you know how they're doing? Yes. So we, we are in contact with almost all of our clients um, in some capacity, right? Like we're not supporting them to the extent that we were when they first came home, but we let them know that our services are available to them at any point. Um, whether that looks like emotional support, checking in, whether it looks like, um, you know, if some need crops up and they need a new job, they need to find new housing, we are always here as a resource for them. So we do have a pretty lengthy relationship with all of our clients on that front. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Now, um, I'm wondering about uh, a monetary issue in at the uh, Florida Innocence Project. We have an emergency fund, and one of our exonerees always wanted to be a truck driver, but it cost mm -hmm. a lot of money to train him and get a license to drive a truck, and the our project paid $5,000 so he could do that. Do you have anything like that for, you know, if someone needs uh, a good amount of money for something, uh, would you be able to give that to them? How does that work? Yeah, we do have an emergency fund oh, that we are certainly hoping to grow. <laughs> um, but as of now, it, it is, you know, emergency. So health-related, housing-related oh, um, in times of financial stress, for sure. Oh, I see. So they can come to you and, and ask for mm -hmm. some help. I see. So is it because you have limited funds that it's not, you know, there for just anything that is needed. Yeah, we're we're still very small, especially compared to other chapters. I think so. All right. Um, yeah. Where where does money come from to support the Pennsylvania Innocence Project? So, as far as I know, we do a lot of um, fundraising. Our executive director Nan. Um, mm -hmm. So, I think it's primarily grants and um, fundraising donors and private donations, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's a very very important. Um, across the country, um, I did a little research. Um, would you say there are plenty of reentry projects? that are available to people who come out of prison or nowhere near enough? Nowhere near enough. Mm -hmm. We need more, <laughs> so yeah. many more. Um, I know that the project is only one piece of that puzzle, right? Especially in terms of who can access our services. And I think in terms of reentry as a whole, there needs to be way more support for people who leave prison. And and why, why do you think there is such a, a shortage or a dearth of support for people coming out of prison? I think my personal opinion is that, you know, partially people don't think that um, people who have been incarcerated are deserving of support, 
right? Mm -hmm. On some level, I think there is a certain value that we place on people who have been in prison at some point. Um, and I, I, that is my hypothesis is that, you know, we don't think that they need and are deserving of the support that they, they need. Um, there are some projects I have interviewed some guests over the last couple of years and um, you brought to mind um, a project called Miles of Freedom, mm. which was started by Richard Miles, who was also incarcerated uh, for mm. 10 years uh, wrongfully. And he came out and used his last name and uh, created a nonprofit. And he helps people uh, who are getting out just like he was. Yeah. So that that's yeah. one. Yeah, that's a great one. And um, then there is After Innocence, uh, mm. which is based, I believe, in California. I interviewed the uh, founder of that project as well. And he helps with um, things like, well, where could I find a dentist? Mm. Where could I find um, uh, a, um, a, a counselor, you know, for, for therapy? Um, what about um, the bureaucracy of Medicaid, Medicare? How can I deal with that? And he puts them in touch wherever they are. He, he um, deals with people across the nation. Yeah. Uh, so wherever they are, he try, he kind of hooks them up with somebody. So that is really something needed because his reach is so uh, large which is right. really nice. So I had him on as a guest. And then um, there is a woman out in Indiana. There are two, there are not, not as many women exonerees, as you know, uh, mm -hmm. as men. And she was locked up for 17 years for uh, arson. Uh, in that fire, her little boy died. And she mm -hmm. served 17 years. But she created Justice for Just Us. She calls it J for J <laughs> and same idea, helping mm -hmm. people when they come out. And then there's a, a woman in, in Florida that I know well, uh, her group is called Project 180 and mm -hmm. she actually provides homes. They, her project has purchased homes um, and has a, a small amount of men, strictly men living there, maybe six in each wow. house. So, but uh, that's all I think I can think of. It's nowhere near what it should be, right? Nowhere near. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe with a program like this, a podcast like this, uh, people listening will either support uh, the ones that exist or maybe think uh, to start one. I, you know, I, I think it's probably difficult to do an independent mm -hmm. reentry program. You do it as a, an arm of the project itself, right? Right. Um, what about the Innocence Project in New York, the original project? Do they have a large reentry um, division? They do, they do. Um, and they have, as far as I know, multiple social workers on staff and pretty significant support for reentry. Yeah, the key is again, money. Right. So how, how, I don't think I asked you this, how many uh, people like you work at the project? 
So we just brought on um, another social worker a few weeks ago. So now there's two of us, but um, all these years there has only been one person. And that's that's a, a really a job for more than one, right? Too too much for just one person. Well, that's a good sign. So we are just about out of time, Mal. It's been absolutely a pleasure to have you uh, enlighten us and educate us uh, as to this very important topic that often is shadowed after the excitement and the thrill of having someone leave prison after many, many years, but they need us all after they leave. It, it yeah. doesn't stop there, right? It, sh it shouldn't, let's say it shouldn't stop there. <laughs> it shouldn't. So, yeah. Thank well, you. Thank you for having me again. Well, thank you for all of what you helped us understand and, and learn today. And uh, I, I wish you well in your job and hope you stay there for a long time to come because I'm sure they need you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you very, very much. And uh, don't forget about Wrongful Conviction Day. Um, if, you know, if you miss it, uh, any donation to any uh, Innocence Project is always helpful and very much needed. Thank you for listening today, and we will see you next time on Pursuing Justice.